0: This is the Bartender Journey Podcast.
1: It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 275. My name's Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, it's National Gin and Tonic Day coming up next week, believe it or not, on April 9th. I had never heard of this festive holiday before, but it was brought to my attention, and I love gin and tonics. So let's do it. We'll talk to Kelly Rivers, brand ambassador for Sip Smith Gin, about gin in general and National Gin and Tonic Day. First, I want to tell you about a couple of things. There's a new video from Gaz Regan, which is really wa- wor- it's really worth watching. Gaz is a mentor of mine, and to the bartender to the bartending community in general, really, I highly recommend you checking this video out. And you can find it on YouTube or check it out on the Bartender Journey website. I'll embed it in the show notes. Our sponsor this week is Cake. POS from Cisco. Yeah, Cisco with an S. You probably buy uh, a lot of your supplies from them. Uh, Maybe. Most places use it as a huge company. Cake is the point of sale system that lets bar and restaurant owners and managers focus on the guest experience. Stop worrying about tracking every sale. Cake does that for you. You can automatically save information and review it later from anywhere. That means maybe as a manager or owner, you can actually take some days off, which uh, is pretty rare in in this business. No matter where you are, you can check in on daily reports and know that they'll be up to date to get started with cake check out trycake.com bartender at at that link for our bartender journey listeners you can get $750 off the activation fee that's a 75% discount so go to trycake.com bartender and request a demo Here's another great opportunity for you. This is not a sponsored message, but I just want to tell you about Bar Methods, because I did it, and it was awesome. Bar Methods is held once a year in uh, August in New York City. It's three days of classes and dinners and happy hours and more, and you spend three nights at the Great Park South Hotel. The whole thing is extremely reasonably priced. i got to tell you, you couldn't stay in one night in that hotel for what this whole thing costs. Plus, of course, lots of learning, fun, and an opportunity to make great new friends. I was in the very first Bar Methods class about three three or four years ago and uh it it was it was great so uh it's a great opportunity for you just wanted to let you know about it and applications are open now at barmethods.com. let's talk to kelly rivers hello how are you
0: i am okay i is uh i'm sitting in this lovely cafe and i'm really excited to have a chat with you
1: well me too we've never met but uh i see we have over a hundred mutual friends on facebook so we must travel in the same circles
0: as I like to say uh, to people, especially since I've probably met them and have a really bad uh, recognition for name, their drinks I can always remember, but their name <laughs> and their faces, a little bit rough. Um, I'm very self-conscious about it, so I usually say, oh, we must have met, and there must have been drinking involved. Responsible drinking, but drinking nonetheless.
1: <laughs> exactly. I always say, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's nice seeing you, or it's been nice seeing you. No. I, I leave out, out the again, just in case. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So tell us uh, a little bit about your, your history.
0: Yeah. So I am, uh, originally, um, from the Bay area. Um, I was born in Oakland. I grew up in Europe. Um, I have four degrees in culinary art. Um, I've traveled the world, lived in every continent, but Antarctica, um, working mostly in kitchens and bartending in the, on the side. My actual first bartending job was in uh, Japan. So I did my internship in Tokyo oh, wow. and because, uh, and this was back in the late 90s, so we're not talking about like hard shake Tokyo, we're talking about okay. like something to something. So it's a little more romantic than uh, I make it seem, but I let lead, the, uh, lead people to make their own decisions. Um, the m- most interesting um, ingredient that Tokyo just found at that point was galliano. So <laughs> okay. lots of Harvey Wallbangers. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then when I finally came back to San Francisco to work in kitchens, Um, I worked in a lot of really great prestigious restaurants, but also still continued to bartend on the side because, again, making $7.75 an hour during the first dot-com boom of San Francisco was not necessarily very luxurious. So bartending always played a little bit better. And I got to work in a bunch of restaurants. um, And one of the restaurants I worked um, called Fonda, which was in Albany, was a top 100 restaurant in San Francisco. We had a really good bar program. But using fresh ingredients, this is the beginning of like that that kind of era of like, oh, we're going to go back to look at these Jerry Thomas books, or we're going to make things 100% with fresh produce and things like that. And it was a Latin restaurant. And um, the current bar manager wanted to do things like French martinis and chocolate Manhattans. So the bartenders kind of revolted against him because it wasn't (laughs) alongside how great the food was. And so we created a very tequila focused, rum focused, and cachaça focused uh, cocktail menu. Um, and then they slowly opened up more restaurants. One of them was a fish restaurant that had a uh, focus of gin and vodka. And then uh, there was T-Rex, which was a American a barbecue joint. And so we focused on American whiskeys. And when I moved from San Francisco to New York for to take this job with Sipsmith um, last year, I found that menu from uh, T-Rex and we were selling Happy for like $9 for a two ounce <laughs> pour and I couldn't give it away. Like nobody cared. It was really interesting because there was a lot of these like small American um, craft whiskey makers that nobody were, st- people were starting to kind of get to know, but they had to like make something else to wait for their juice to age. Um, and so vodka wasn't very crafty and they probably, and they had these pot stills, so they weren't really making vodka. But they started to make gin. And I've always been a classic gin uh, drinker. Uh, My grandparents drank gin when the sun was out and whiskey when the sun went down. You know, that's what you did in the South. Sounds perfect to me. Yeah. And so, but there was, so I had to like try to get people to drink this gin because you had to drink the gin to get the whiskey. And so I had to educate people on the gin. And like gin cocktails and the history of it and just kind of get through that again, that whiskey mentality that people were just starting to get. I mean, we didn't have any very fancy television shows like Mad Men that get people to understand what a Manhattan was and old fashioned. So gin was really still something that they had a bad experience with and maybe college or their grandparents drank. So we were really going against the grain here. And I just really enjoyed it. And as I started to move directly just into bars and kind of leave my culinary uh, on pause for a while, it just seemed that this was kind of a natural progression. And as I got older, bartending for 12 to 14 hours a day just did not take very well to my body. Yeah, so I as, hear you. <laughs> So I'm trying to figure out what to do next, steps in my career, and I really like this education thing. And at the time, there was a lot of voices. There happened to be a lot of uh, male voices in the a whiskey which is what I've been talking about and working with. But there wasn't a lot of voices in gin. And so I decided to go kind of the Ian of the rum world. And I made these business cards and self-proclaimed myself the global gin ambassador. Nice. And the protector of Geneva, both Auda and Junga. And I made these, I, made, I got myself a new email address and I finally went on Instagram and I put, did these business cards and I went to Tails. This was about 10 years ago. Mm. And I started handing them out. And I'm just like, yes, handing out all these business cards. And then people started emailing me and asking me questions. So that was like, oh, well, I guess now I need to know these things. And so that's kind of when I went down the rabbit hole of of being a gin educator. And I've been very lucky in my career that I've been able to travel the world, uh, educating people about gin and talking about it and basically just putting gin in people's hands so they can maybe rethink what they uh, wanted to. Uh, about what this lovely uh, botanical spirit is, I was very fortunate to help open up White Chapel in San Francisco, uh, which is the Martin, Kate, and Alex Smith gin extravaganza, uh, the largest gin bar in the Americas. Um, I got to help open them with that, um, which also then led me to help with Atlas on their opening menu. So I got to help them find what American gins they should be carrying and how to Contact those distillers.
1: There's a lot, lot to talk about there. We, yeah. <laughs> for just for anybody who doesn't know, uh, Ian Burrell, that he was uh, self self proclaimed gin and uh, rum ambassador. So uh, yeah. he he kind of started this. So I remember the first time I met him. I said, like, "You're rum ambassador for who?" He's just just rum. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, I invented my own job." And I thought that was amazing. So that's so cool that you followed in those footsteps.
0: Yeah. It just, and I've actually, with with Sipsmith, I have, I would go as a self-proclaimed gin ambassador, I would go to England, London, because this is the birthplace of where, you know, the gin renaissance is and all the history that I've read and reread and picked apart. So I went there and I was very taken back by the fact that all these amazing bars that you read about only had the big brands. Like, where yeah. is all the gin? Where is all that stuff that we really love? That stuff that we we culture here in the U.S. like craft and the small and the being able to go and know who I'm who's making it by name. Like where is that? It just really wasn't shown. Um, and so this is kind of how I came upon Sipsmith. Was like all of a sudden I hear these whisperings of of this little you know little distillery, which happened to their the original distillery was in Michael Jackson, not the singer, but <laughs> the whiskey and beer um,
1: writer. Yeah.
0: Writer, It was in his former workshop, which was great because my father is a beer drinker. So I'm like, I'll kill two birds with one stone. And I went and I peeked in the little blue door and it was tiny and they were really busy. So they didn't really notice me much and I didn't have a chance to say hi. But I went looking for their gin and I started smuggling back Sipsmith gin into the U.S. because not smuggling, I was drinking responsibly. So the (laughs) TSA is listening. but basically I uh, started bringing bottles back um, into the US about 2010. So little after a year that the distillery was legally up and running. And I've been a fan ever since. And I knew their original uh, national US ambassador, uh, Leilani. And when she decided that after a good four years that she was time to move on and do something else, um, the opportunity for me to be come on board was there. And it kind of seemed like a no-brainer.
1: Very cool. Well we'll, well, we'll talk more about gin in a minute, but um, uh, Japanese bartending, something, you, you were there sort of before this all started, but have you been back since, and, and can you speak to uh, the Japanese-style bartending at all?
0: Um, I did go about four years ago, um, and when you could get into the bars, it was it's pretty amazing. It's like, it took me a really long time to realize that I didn't hear any water running. Hmm. It was like they would make the drinks and then they would put the shakers or anything down somewhere and somebody would take it, a magical elf bar back would take <laughs> it and wash it somewhere else. Wow. And, you know, and what going to bars in Jap- Japan and that kind of style really made me think about was ambiance and everything else around it and how it affected what you drank. Mm-hmm and it was really kind of symbiotic. That's something that, you know, you worry about what the lights look like and what the music in the background, but you don't really understand how much congestion of noise really affects the way you taste something and kind of can muddle your palate and your senses.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's been a few articles written about that recently about how the, how the noise affects your, your palate. And, uh, I actually had an idea to do it, a, a cocktail competition and, and cro- incorporate that. And somebody was like, oh, it's, it's already been done. <laughs> somebody <laughs> already did that.
0: <laughs> uh, all the best things have been done, but they can always be reworked slightly.
1: Right. So there's a long history of making gin right in the city of London. And SIP Sipsmith is, uh, is made right in the city, yeah?
0: Yeah, we are. We are made in uh, Chiswick, which is a residential area um, out of London. It is we're actually the first uh, distillery to be made in London in almost 200 years, which when I go and I educate and I talk about it, people are just like, OK, yeah, yeah. And then I have to make I have to pause them and say, think about it this way. Think about me saying champagne wasn't made in champagne or Parmigiano Reggiano wasn't made in Parm and or cognac's not made in cognac for 200 years. And people are like, well, what do you mean? It's London Dry Gin. I'm like, London Dry Gin doesn't mean anything. It actually wasn't defined by the EU until 2009. And it doesn't say where it's made, it just says how it's made and what it's made with. And even the US doesn't even recognize this. So when our two founders, Sam and Fairfax, decided in 2006 that they were finally gonna do this thing making a craft distillery, gin distillery in London, they didn't really do a lot of their homework and they decided to go about it without really noticing that the reason why there are no real distilleries in London is because there was a law that was put into place in 1757 basically outlawing gin production and rectification in London, the city of London and Westminster, unless you had a still of a certain size. Basically at this time, the gin craze was going crazy, one in three buildings made, sold or consumed gin And so what they really wanted to do is they wanted to slow down and stop production of this thing. And so they decided the best way to do it was make it so because they knew that they couldn't stop distillation. But if we made it a law about that if your steel had to be bigger than what the average building could hold, (laughs) then that would eventually slow it down, which it didn't really do. Basically what it did, what ended up happening was there was a good four to five years of really severe drought. And the grain started to get really, really expensive. Oh. And so what happened was all these distillers had to go to Scotland and Ireland. Because, you know, the English didn't care if the Scottish or the Irish starved as long as the English didn't. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. So this Um, is also why
0: there's yeah, this is also why there's not a lot of like there's no English whiskey because all those distillers went to Scotland and Ireland.
1: Right. But so when was that law changed and who and how how did that come about?
0: Well, so what ended up happening was um, our founders after they realized that when they went to go get their uh, distilling license and they were basically laughed at, they're like, nobody has uh, ever really issued one. We don't know what it looks like. No one (laughs) died 50 years has ever issued one. So what they ended up doing was as you do and you think your life is falling apart, you you go and drink. And so what they ended up doing, they ended up going to the opening Negroni party for Beefeeder's new visitor center. Hmm. Now Beefeeder, as we all know, their, their tagline is made with real London topwater was actually the last distillery to get an issued license in 1820. Wow. <laughs> so it is also made in London, but this was the only one. And so while they were there drowning their sorrows in Negronis, they met a gentleman by the name of Jared Brown. Jared Brown and his wife, Anastasia Miller, are cocktail historians. They've written over eight books on the history of cocktails, ranging from all sorts. Jared also happens to be a gin distiller. So they decided how they were drinking with them. They were talking about what was happening and the ethos. And after a few Negronis, as all great plans happen, after a few Negronis, they decided that a lot of their thoughts of what they wanted to do aligned. And so with Jared's help, in about almost two and a half years, they changed the law and opened up distilling in London. Now, if you think about that, when we got our license in 2009, on March 14th of 2009— we were basically there were 14 distilleries in England, in all of England making all spirits. Wow! In 2018, there was over 450 distilleries in England. Hmm. In the city of London alone, there's 15 distilleries and they're making over a thousand labels of gin. Wow! So, which is really a great point of pride for us is we helped open up this like new yeah. boom of gin history. However, we also opened it up for all our competitors. Right. So. What we have to do is we have to make sure that all of our gin, all of our SKUs, everything we do is a quality thing that will last the next 200 years. Everything is to the point of what a traditional London dry when it became popular in the mid 1800s were. Copper pot distillation, really great clean English distillate. Um, we do maceration. We do everything um, in a very small amount of time. We run the stills maybe once a day that takes anywhere between five and seven hours. Uh, we live in a little residential area, so we can only distill five days a week. Uh-huh. We, have four, we have four copper pot stills. Nothing is going to be too large because we just can't do it. So mm-hmm. everything has to stand the test of time. And right. that's kind of the ethos of what our, 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 our company is.
1: So, What is the definition of a London dry gin?
0: As the EU defines it, a London dry gin must be made from a uh, Distillate that comes off the still at 96, higher than 96% alcohol from an uh, agricultural product. Then botanicals of agricultural nature have to be redistilled in the liquid. And then taken off higher than I think it was uh, 50. No, I think it's like higher than 42%. Don't quote me on that one. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and then the only thing you can add after distillation is more neutral spirit, which is what we call a multi-shot distillation, or water. And mm-hmm. so at Sipsmith, we only add water. Right. So the amount of botanicals we add to the distill uh, the distillate is the flavor profile we want after it comes off the still.
1: Right. So just to break that down from anybody who doesn't know how gin is made, um, the, you'll, you'll bring in a very, very high-proof um, spirit, neutral grain spirit, as we call it, right? Yes. And that that's usually... Normally sourced from somewhere else. Right. And then and then it's redistilled. So it goes through distill again. And then at this point, the botanicals are added. Yeah.
0: Yes. So what we do is we add our 10 botanicals, Uh, uh, eight of them go into the liquid and macerate for 13 hours for our London drive. That's before the
1: before the distillation. Right. Before, before the second before the second distillation, yeah.
0: Before the second distillation, our dried orange and dried lemon peel get into a vapor basket, which hangs above the liquid, so the vapor, because we don't want it to be too bitter. Right. And then um, after it macerates for 13 hours, basically in the morning, the distillers come in, they turn it on, and they make the run. So we're actually cutting away the heads and the tails. So the first part of the run that is going to be— kind of too alcoholy and not enough flavor and the tails, which might become too bitter. So stuff that's been sitting around throughout the entire run. And we only keep the hearts. So very much like in brandy and whiskey making. Um, We do this actually by taste. So we have five very happy distillers that sit there and do it by taste because ambient temperature and botanicals change from time to time. So we have to like make sure that we are, what we're taking from the middle is what we want. And Jared lovingly says that he can do it based on smell. Uh, which no one's really challenged them, but I don't think anyone <laughs> wants to either. So um, it's not the most economical way to make gin, but again, this is how gin was made in the heyday of a London
1: dry gin. Right. And th- that basket is the most fascinating part of gin to me because <laughs> it's unique to gin, right? The, the, the basket, that, uh, so the, the vapor passes through the basket before it, um, before it comes off the still.
0: And there's actually a few different ways that where the baskets are. Sometimes the basket's in the pot, sometimes the basket's over um, where the swan neck is. So mm-hmm. as in um, Bombay Sapphire, all the botanicals are during the vapor acts before it goes down to, uh, condenses back down to liquid. Um, I like to playfully call it maceration, percolation, vaporation.
1: Right. Well, I have some Sipsmith lemon drizzle gin in front of me here.
0: So the lemon drizzle just actually got launched um, in March uh, here in the United States. So we're really excited. Lemon drizzle, for all of those who don't know, is a kind of a cake that is made in England. It's kind of something your grandmother would make or mm-hmm. tea cake or something. That, it's like a lemon pound cake that's soaked in lemon juice and then like a royal icing on the top. However, when we decided that we wanted to play with the citrus driven gin a few, about four years ago, we basically wanted to do it in the way Victorian gins of like the 1900s. So they used to, distillers used to make these uh, lemon, orange, mint, and this thing called wet, which would be a pear type of gin. Um, that was much more fruit driven. Um, they were really popularized in the 1930s, but by the 1950s, nobody's drinking gin. Away they go. So this isn't a flavored gin that is very popular right now. Um, it is still a gin, you still get that juniper. And so what we really wanted to do is we wanted to highlight everything citrus about it. So what we do, it's not we take that London dry base, same 10 botanicals, but the coriander of that, we up it up by 30%. -hmm. So we get those kind of peppery, like kind of woody notes that lemons can have. Um, In the flavor basket, the vapor basket, there is still the dry lemon peel. But what also we do is we have fresh lemon peel because we want those bright notes. Also in that flavor basket, we add... Uh, lemon verbena. So lemon verbena gives those kind of y candy notes.
1: What is it? Lemon what?
0: Lemon verbena. I don't know what that is. Lemon verbena, for me, um, not necessarily the best way to describe it. It smells like Fruit Loops.
1: <laughs> so it's an, an herb or a, a spice? It is an herb, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. Makes,
0: if you ever uh, get some fresh, really good in hot water is a On like really kind of settles the stomach. Yeah. And then because the skin, we're kind of rounding it out. We want that round, full mouth feel. We add vanilla beet pods to that. So ah. it gives it kind of this kind of sweet kind of, uh, expression in the mouth and it makes the tongue go side to side instead of front to back. And it then, is,
1: yeah, it is a little, um, I made, I just made myself a, uh, gin and tonic with the lemon, lemon drizzle. And, um, I, 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 I split it actually uh after tasting it with the tonic i, I added some um some seltzer to it as well and yeah. it came it came out great that way
0: so but, you uh, made a sonic exactly <laughs> very popular in japan yeah parts tonic and soda yeah so if you have in a gin all these really high top notes so like the first thing that you're getting are all these citrus notes well, the lemon, what the lemon or uh, the vanilla does, it gives you this kind of mid palette that kind of gives you texture. But gin isn't just top notes or midpoints. There's something that needs to be lengthened in the back, and that we add a little bit more cinnamon to our regular recipe because we want to have a nice bottom note. We want something that kind of lengthens, so it's not just brightness, but it has depth to it.
1: Well, let me ask you: What do you? What do you? Tell, I, I get frustrated behind the bar with people saying, "Oh, you know, gin." I had a hard time with it. I, I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's just you know, it's not that far from vodka. It's just more tasty, you know. So you drink vodka. I know you do. So, uh, what would you tell? What do you tell people that, that, well, that say stuff like that?
0: Well, for people that don't think they like gin or they've had bad experiences, I, I kind of, I very carefully go into this, especially the vodka drinkers. So I do say, well, think about it this way. Gin is just flavored vodka, even yeah. though it hurts my juniper soaked soul.
1: Or, <laughs> I like well, to Well, it's say an easy way to explain it anyway. anyway.
0: Or I like to say that vodka is just unfinished gin.
1: Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've seen such an explosion in the uh, gin category. I mean, I, did, I spent all of January in Europe and gin and gin and gin and tonics and, and especially are just everywhere. It's amazing. So what, what, was there a certain like uh, catalyst that started that or where did that come from?
0: Well, the uh, explosion of gin tonicas um, definitely kind of had the heart in Spain. Um, right. I call it, I call it the nacho effect. Nobody wants nachos until they see a plate of nachos go by. <laughs> then you're like, yes, yes, I do want nachos. <laughs> a lot of it came from the fact that bartenders were using fresh garnisher, garnitures. So it looked appealing. Like you saw this 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 big copa, which is a giant like goblet of a glass with really nice big ice, because ice started becoming a thing too, with all these garnishes stuck around. You're like, whatever that is, I want that in my mouth. Yep. Um, So that was kind of the first thing was this this idea of what it visually looked like, you know, as opposed to a rocks glass with some, you know, maybe some party ice, which is not necessarily the greatest ice and whatever tonic you got lying around and maybe a lime that was cut that day. And to this thing that was kind of ornate and people started like pairing certain garnishes with that gin to make to elevate it.
1: And certain tonics to go with certain gins, right?
0: And the next thing that happened was tonic. Um, tonic started to grow up. Where gin started to grow up and ice started to grow up, tonic also grew up. And we're starting to see this boom of good tonics and different styles of tonics. A lot of people who don't like gin is mostly because they have had bad gin experience. And usually, in my case, um, what I found out, it was like a gin and tonic from their local pub where it was just either too sweet or too bitter and not enough carbonation because carbonation is really needed right. for a gin and tonic because yeah. it brings all those like brightnesses up to the front or they just had a really bad martini. And as a self-proclaimed gin lover, I actually don't like martinis or gin and tonics.
1: No. <laughs> well, how do you don't, like it?
0: <laughs> don't. Um, well, I love the Negroni is my, yeah. my classic way to drink uh, gin. Sure. As for something that's citrusy, I love a gin Ricky. Um, mm-hmm with just like a half of a lime squeezed and dropped in. Um, I love a Collins. A yeah. French 75 just blows my mind as long yeah. as it's on ice. Hmm. So two-thirds of all classic cocktails are made with gin, so there's a plethora of cocktails to go through before yeah. I get bored.
1: Any, uh, any original cocktails you can share with us?
0: well, um, I'm, I'm more of a classist yeah. about our classics I don't. I don't even know. That's. What, I don't think that's a word. But I do like <laughs> the classic now. cocktails. Yeah, <laughs> I do like the classic cocktails. Um, I'm not one for tweaking a lot of those recipes. And also, not being behind a bar in the last few years has made me rusty in my cocktail. But I do love, especially our VJOP as a uh, cocktail. So uh, old fashioned, where it's um, you know two ounces of our VJOP a bar spoon of gum syrup or a two to one rich, rich, simple syrup. And then I add just like a bar spoon of like an uh, an apricot or peach ODB because I want to bring out those florals. And then I use Abbott's bitters um, as my aromatic. Um, I would not recommend using um, Angostura because it has too much allspice and that allspice might, um, depending on what gin you use, might uh, bring out too much spice notes and might get too heady for it. And then I like a grapefruit pill on it. You like a what? Grapefruit peel.
1: Oh, that's an amazing ingredient. That's an amazing addition to any cocktail, I would say. Well, uh, this all started – it's National Gin and Tonic Day. I didn't even know about this until uh, until I heard from Jamie. But uh, what's that all about? April 9th, National Gin and Tonic Day.
0: April 9th is National Gin and Tonic Day because we all need another reasons to go out and enjoy our favorite gin and tonic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it's really exciting um, to start getting to see people on board in the UK. It's just kind of a thing. Like people are like, "Why do we need a national day to drink uh, gin and tonics?" I'd never say you need to, but if you want to, um, you can. But usually, what happens in the UK, you get off of work, you run down to your local pub because they close at like 10 p.m. Yeah, and you start off with a gin or tonic or two, and then you would go to beer, and then you would go home and eat dinner like a good, you know, good Brit would. Um, <laughs> But that kind of mentality doesn't really happen here in the U.S. And it's kind of seen as a warmer weather cocktail. Yeah. And I think gin and tonic is a all-seasons type of thing.
1: Sure.
0: Um, so I think these National Gin and Tonic Day in April is kind of a way to start people realizing that the weather is getting warmer, it's getting lighter, our drinks are going to start getting clearer and more spritzy. Um, and then on the other hand, International Gin and Tonic Day is actually October 19th. Oh, so that's towards the end of the season. So now you have it on bookends.
1: Perfect. Well, we'll have to celebrate again. Well, I I celebrate gin and tonic day most, most every day.
0: <laughs> as any good person any good drinker would do
1: <laughs> well Kelly it was such a pleasure thank you so much for talking to me I appreciate yeah, it yeah
0: no problem yeah thanks and so much
1: I hope we can share a gin and tonic one of these days
0: well you have my Facebook information so Did I Friend
1: you? I, 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 if I didn't I will
0: <laughs> alright you and 99 uh, hopefully we'll raise a gin and tonic nice Sipsmith maybe lemon drizzle mm. on, on Tuesday absolutely
1: well All cheers right, Kelly you so thank much. you so much bye bye now Stay tuned for our toast at the very end of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about gin, my personal favorite book on the subject is The Curious Bartender's Gin Palace by Tristan Stevenson. I spoke to Tristan a while back on the show. I'll have a link to the book on bartenderjourney.net. Please feel free to get in touch for any reason at all. You can email me directly at brian at bartenderjourney.net. If you have an interesting story to tell, please get in touch. Don't forget about our sponsor, Cake POS find our special link for our Bartender Journey listeners at trycake.com slash bartender. You can get $750 off the activation fee. That's a 75% discount. Go to trycake.com slash bartender. All right, here's our toast. May our house always be too small to hold all our friends. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey podcast.